Well, thank you, team and servers and all the people who are just involved in, in setting this up for us to, to spend this time together with the Lord. Um, at this time, the kids are dismissed to their program. It looks like they're already heading out. This week, I came across kind of an amusing little uh, story about, um, well, it's kind of a crazy story about a 90-year-old uh, woman from Poland. She lived in a small little town, and her name is uh, Janina. Well, Janina's niece came home to find her elderly aunt unresponsive. Her fears were confirmed when she found no sign of breathing or pulse, so she called their family doctor. The doctor rushed over, and after confirming no pulse or breathing, pronounced uh, Janina dead. But later in the mortuary, the staff were utterly astonished to notice movement. They immediately called an ambulance. Janina had revived after 11 hours in the morgue. She said she felt fine, and she only complained that she was cold, and she wanted to go home and have pancakes. Uh, And so that's what she did. She had a bowl of soup and pancakes. Really crazy story. And I have a little picture over here. It's the sweetest little woman. And uh, she woke up uh, just hungry for pancakes. Meanwhile, her family was, you know, uh, trying to come to grips with, with the loss and making arrangements. And, uh, and meanwhile, Janina's just uh, thinking about pancakes. So often, I think in life, we just make these assumptions that uh, things are too far gone. <laughs> we, uh, we, we cut short of realizing the depths of hope that come from God. We think there's nothing that could revive or restore this world. There's nothing that could revive, uh, fix our nation. There's nothing that could restore our families. They're, they're too far gone. They're just, they're, uh, there's no hope. We think that there's nothing that could uh, restore or revive our own, our own souls. <laughs> I'm all washed up. <laughs> But even if, and sometimes we think it's uh, theoretically possible, but we just can't imagine it actually happening. Could there be a change? Could anything be different? Well, last week we learned that God restores far beyond what we deserve. And this week we'll see that God restores far beyond what we can imagine. And if you're following along in the, in the notes in the bulletin, um, You'll find this passage in Ezekiel 37 on page 724 in those Bibles in front of you. And uh, the big idea for today is that God restores far beyond what we can imagine. Uh, there's a beautiful song by, uh, it's actually called Beautiful Things by, by a couple, um, Michael and Lisa Gungor. And they pose these questions. They say, all this pain... I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth, could all that's lost ever be found? Could a garden come up from this ground at all? These questions, can anything really change? Is there really, is there really hope? Well, the prophet Ezekiel spoke into uh, a time and a place where these were the questions on everybody's mind. The exiles in Babylon, uh, they were uh, devoid of hope. <laughs> they, uh, they saw their, their, their homeland destroyed, um, their people you know, decimated. Um, their, their hope was just uh, completely ruined and at a low place. They wonder, 
is there any hope at all for this world? Is there any hope at all for God's people? Is there any hope at all for me? And so these were the questions on the minds of the exiles. Well, this morning we'll look at two things that God promises to do. And when he makes these promises, they seem unimaginable, and they seem absolutely wonderful. And, uh, and because he's God, he will fulfill these things. This is in, I mentioned Ezekiel 37, it's where we'll pick up our story today. We'll see two really vivid images. This is a familiar passage to, to many of you. And we'll see two really incredible promises that the Lord makes. Promises about restoration for the people of Israel. And what this reveals is that God restores far beyond what we can imagine. And here's the first thing that God does. The first thing he promises. God breathes life into what is completely and utterly dead. So here's what's happening. The exiles, they have no home, nor foreseeable future, no hope. They feel like they're good as dead. And so God grabs a hold of Ezekiel and takes him on another one of these these crazy vision tours. And this time he takes him out to a valley full of dried up bones. And it starts out like this, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So bones scattered around the surface, that'd be a total disgrace, you know, no burial. They're just tossed there on the, on the valley floor, and very dry, you know, they were not just like they'd recently died, you know, like, like Janina, and there's, you know, some question, they were completely, completely dried up. Verse 3, and he said to me, this is God to Ezekiel, he says, son of man, can these bones live? And I just imagine if you're Ezekiel, ah, is this a trick question, God? It sure looks like they're really far gone. Um, and so he says the only sensible thing possible, he says, uh, Lord God, uh, you know. Only you know the answer to that. Can these bones live? Well, last, uh, last week in chapter 36, we saw these promises of glorious restoration, but they seem uh, to the people hard to imagine. The people viewed themselves as dried up bones. There's really no hope for us. And so God tells Ezekiel, say, say this to all those who consider themselves dried up bones. Say this to the bones, verse 5. Behold, I will cause breath to enter in you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come on you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the what? The Lord. Is this phrase familiar? Yeah, we see it throughout, throughout the book. And so Ezekiel does as he's told, and he prophesies to the bones, verse 7. He says, so I prophesied as I was commanded, And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So who has the song in their head right now? A couple of you do, okay, some of you know it. 
So just this crazy thing that starts to you know, form uh, flesh on these skeletons. They, they come together. Well, first it sounds like the actual skeletons had to be pieced together and then covered with flesh. But the problem was there was no breath. Warren Wiersbe makes this comment on this passage. He says, The skeletons were covered with flesh and skin, and they looked like a vast sleeping army. <laughs> the bodies only lacked one thing, and that is life. There, there's this interesting uh, Hebrew word. It's pronounced something like ruach. And uh, Ezekiel uses it a lot. And the word has this kind of wide range, which means uh, sometimes it means uh, the spirit, like the Holy Spirit of God. Um, I'm putting a capital S here. And sometimes it means breath. And sometimes it, just, it means uh, the spirit, like the spirit of a man or, or like a foul spirit. And sometimes it means wind, and sometimes it just kind of refers to, to life. Um, Ezekiel uses pretty much this whole range of its meaning, and a lot of it just right in this passage. Verse 9 says, uh, well, the problem was, They were all put together, but they had no life. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, the ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, ruach. O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great I know a lot of you are familiar with this passage, and you've heard this before, but uh, how astonishing would that whole scene be to see that unfold uh, in front of you? Uh, as a side note, I'm happy to uh, hear that as he sees them, he describes them as a great army, because that makes me, um, that makes me feel comfortable that he also put clothes on them. So he pulled together all these people, and Ezekiel looks out, he's like, wow, that's an army. Uh, If he hadn't uh, clothed them, he might have called them something else, uh, a mob or something. So uh, he has breathed life into something that's completely dead, and now there are this this vast, great army that stands in front of him. So what does it all mean? Uh, He explains, verse 11. So then he said to me, Son of man, these bones, they're the whole house of Israel. Behold, they are saying, our bones are all dried up and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves, and I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the, what? The Lord, this is familiar. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So, it says, you think you're dried up and dead, and there's no future, and there's no hope, and you can't imagine it any other way, but then God restores far beyond what we can imagine. And he makes some promises uh, throughout this passage. Uh, he promises to revive the whole house of Israel in verse 11. All, all the tribes to bring the, the Israel land into, bring them into the land of Israel, to bring you into your own land, verse 14, that they'll know that I am the Lord, verse 13. They'll have this uh, collective acknowledging that Yahweh is God. 
and I'll put my spirit in you, and you shall live this true life through God's spirit. What great promises God gives to his people. Interesting that um, right around the same time, actually slightly before, before Jerusalem fell, uh, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon, uh, a letter talking about what God was going to do. And here's what he says in uh, Jeremiah 29. He says, I I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we we like that verse. It's very encouraging. We put it on mugs and everything. But uh, originally this was written to this ragtag group of exiles that Life just looked really, really bleak. So what does it mean for us that God breathes life into what is completely dead? No matter how far gone, no matter how hopeless you think things are, God can breathe new life uh, into your soul. (laughs) No matter how spiritually unresponsive your loved one is, God can breathe new life into that person. And so... uh, Gungor answers the question that they raise. You know, is there any hope of change at all? Could anything good spring out of this ground at all? And they conclude, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. Um, You know, God reveals to us how he made the first man and woman. He didn't start with, you know, an almost perfect man or woman and just kind of fine-tune him. He started with dirt, with dust, and he breathed his spirit into them. He breathed life, his breath into them. This is what God can do. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, uh, he's reformed. He's, he's pretty, he, he gets a little bit better. Uh, he behaves uh, kind of nice now. No, it says he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Something entirely new. Paul also says in Colossians, well, you, you were so dead in your transgressions or your trespasses, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is what God does. I love the story of the, the prodigal son, of somebody who has wandered so far from their heavenly father, you know, done you know, every imaginable thing that's, um, that's just a disgrace to the family name, so to speak. And ultimately, he comes back to, uh, to the father. And this is how God describes the coming home of the prodigal in Luke 15. He says, for this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is what God loves to do in our lives. Even if we've wandered, even if we we think, well, we've blown it so bad that we're just dried up uh, bones. (laughs) I'm a spiritual corpse. I'm just going to deal with that. And God breathes his spirit. He breathes life into what is completely dead. But here's what I think is really interesting. Um, He doesn't just do this in some uh, individualistic way uh, just to have these different living people scattered here and there. 
when he breathes new life into a person, when he gives his spirit and places his spirit into a person, then uh, things become possible that before were impossible. He brings reconciliation where there was brokenness. Say, God mends what is irreconcilably broken. And so the Lord gives a whole another uh, image, kind of an object lesson this time uh, to Ezekiel to bring before the people, uh, starting in verse 16. And, and this message shows us that God mends what's irreconcilably broken. And he says this in verse 16, he says, Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. So God tells Ezekiel, you know, take two sticks, write one. You know, stick one stands for the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And stick number two is the northern kingdom of Israel. So make, you know, these two sticks. Well, these two groups of people were at odds for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years of, of division, you know, ever since uh, after Solomon's death. Hundreds of years of uh, periodic war, of mistrust, of uh, different religious practices, different, different rulers, different alliances, and they met different fates. The northern kingdom had, um, had already been uh, destroyed by Assyria a couple hundred years earlier. They... Uh, you just could not imagine these two groups coming back together and being one. Yet God says in verse 17, take these two sticks and join them together into one stick. Now, I don't know if God just performed a miracle so that he stuck these sticks together and all of a sudden it's one stick, or just symbolically, you know, Ezekiel just attached them together. But in any case, he made this one stick out of two sticks. And why? That they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, oh, will you not tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. God promises to gloriously restore and to reconcile his people to each other. And God's promises are greater than our observations or our assumptions. I think if you were living during that time, you would have never imagined that such a thing could happen. And yet these following verses describe um, these glorious fulfillments of some of the greatest promises uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, some of the great, uh, the great covenants that we refer to, like the the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where God promises to bless his descendants and give him, give him this land. Well, here in verse 21, it says, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. How about the, the covenant to David in 2 Samuel that promises um, a king from David's dynasty that would rule over united uh, Israel um, perpetually, you know, uncontested. Well, verse 22 says, Well, I'll make them one nation in the land and on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. 
And then there's the new covenant that uh, Jeremiah speaks of and, and Ezekiel refers to and, and Jesus talks about. A promise of transfer, transformation from the inside out by the pouring out of God's Spirit. Well, here, verse 23, it says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So God says, I'm going to do amazing things that you cannot imagine, you cannot believe. And so I think this is the point for us, the, the, really, the, the relevance uh, as I consider this in my own life is this. When God transforms his people with the life-giving power of his spirit, then he enables reconciliation to happen that we previously could not imagine. God mends what is irreconcilably broken. What has been ripped apart, he can mend. Many years ago, uh, actually it was shortly after we first moved here, um, the first time, and our kids were real little, um, Heather, actually, I think, were you at that time a Pampered Chef uh, distributor? Anyway, we had this, no, it was, that was past that point. But we had this, you know, mandolin, uh, not like the kind you play, but the kind you chop food on like this, uh, that I think was Pampered Chef. Anyway, I decided to uh, slice uh, basically a frozen piece of pork on it because um, I thought it would, you know, it'd make nice thin slices that way. So I'm pushing really hard on the mandolin. And you can kind of see where this is going. Uh, I pushed real hard, and it wouldn't budge, and I pushed harder, and then whoosh, And it took just the tip of my thumb off. Um, I, I, don't went, I don't know exactly how far, but it looked like when you slice a strawberry. Um, it has that kind of texture, inside a thumb texture looking at and, uh, and it hurt a lot, and it also kind of made me feel a little bit sick to my stomach seeing it. And, and I picked up the piece. It, it wasn't like half my thumb or anything. It's just a slice. I, put, I stuck it back on and put a Band-Aid over the top, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. It seems like it's a little deep for just a Band-Aid, but, you know, I don't, I don't need, you know, the hospital or anything. So uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but I called my good friend Hanny because he's, you know, a medic. And I went over to, uh, to his house, and he took a look at that, and, uh, and he asked me this question about that piece that I kind of t- uh, taped back on the top. He says, was it, to- was it totally severed or... Or was it, or is it like a flap there? Like, oh no, I picked it up off the ground and stuck it back on. <laughs> and so, with a smile on his face, uh, and without any explanation, he reached over and he pulled that back off. And um, he said something. I don't remember the exact words, but it's, but it was something to the effect that you know that that's not going to grow back because it's dead. It's been completely, you know completely severed. Um, it's not worth trying to, you know, just stick it back on because it was dead. But if that had life in it, if it was still connected, if, if you know, the, the blood was still getting uh, into that little piece of my thumb, then that could have been mended. And so we look at uh, our relationships, things going on in communities, in our, in our own families, and we say, there, there's no way that that thing's going to grow back and be okay. Well, maybe there's not unless there's life in it, unless God and his spirit has 
has breathed new life and made uh, life where something was dead and dried up. Um, he could do anything. He could mend the relationships that are in the worst shape possible. And here's what we see in the New Testament church is these beautiful um, life-giving and reconciling things happening. Here, here's the, the testimony that the outside world saw that just blew them away. They did not understand and began to sweep across the land and change uh, people's lives. And that is when, when God placed people who would, you would never picture them in the same, in the same you know, home, and now they're sharing meals together and loving each other, and he placed them right side by side. That, that's what happened in the New Testament church. We, saw, we see Gentile believers that were sharing meals with Jews, the very same people who used to see them on the side of the road and go way around the other side, like in disgust, like, oh, I don't even you know, want to deal with those people. And now they're sharing meals together. They're sitting next to each other in church. They are loving each other. We see uh, slaves sitting in church next to the wealthy people who used to exploit them, sharing meals together, eating, worshiping together. So we see all these divisions that happen between, between the sexes and between generations and ethnicities and background and cultures and politics, all these divides, all these things. You're like, well, there's, you know, there's no hope trying to sort that one out. And, uh, and we see those people embracing each other and loving each other and reconciled because God has made them alive. They're no longer a bunch of dead pieces that you're just trying to cram together and make, you know, look pretty somehow. They have been made alive by God's Spirit, and there could be real, profound reconciliation. Husbands and wives with irreconcilable differences now can be reconciled by God's Spirit. Estranged family members that we've given up on could be reconciled by God's Spirit. Communities that have been ripped apart by racial tension and, and mistrust can be reconciled by God's Spirit. We just never should say that, well, that's just the way it is. There's no use trying. Because God's Spirit can change that. Uh, there's no guarantee that all these relationships will be reconciled, but what we can say is that uh, if you're a child of God, you can do your part. This is how, uh, I like how Paul says it in Romans 12. He says, well, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live, it peace- live peaceably with all. You know, you can, you can do your part on your end. You can move toward reconciliation. Uh, several of us in here went through um, Dr. Emerson's uh, love and respect uh, for, for marriages. Um, really a, a great uh, curriculum. But he says this, this comment in here, when, uh, when couples are in, in uh, this cycle of conflict, he says, people always ask, uh, when husbands and wives are in this cycle of conflict, he asks, who moves first? In other words, uh, who's responsible to humbly initiate reconciliation? He says, I always reply, the one who sees himself or herself as the most mature moves first. Don't you love that, that comment? Because usually when we're in conflict, we're assuming like, well, I'm, I'm fine, but it's their, you know, they're the one with the, with the problem. And so you're setting yourself up as the spiritually mature one. And he says, 
Well, okay, if you're the spiritually mature one, then take, take the first step. Humble yourself. Ask for forgiveness where that's appropriate. Re- reconcile. Place that on your own shoulders. If God's Spirit is alive in you, then, uh, then things you thought were unimaginable <laughs> become possible. God restores far beyond what we can imagine, and one way he does that is by mending what is irreconcilably broken. So in Ezekiel's prophecy, we get these incredible glimpses of God's plan for a future restoration of, of Israel. It's really, it's really amazing. It's quite, it's quite incredible, uh, the, the track uh, that God is moving history toward. Um, but I'm going to suggest that when we see uh, prophecies in the Bible, even prophecies that talk about things far future, uh, the emphasis is always on our present response. So the idea isn't uh, for God to give this information to Ezekiel about what he's going to do a long time later, and, uh, and God's not saying something like, hey, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years from now, when these things start to take place, you'll understand it because I told you about this ahead of time. Well, yeah, that might be true, but his main point is respond right now to this information. I think his point is this. Know that I am the God who keeps my promises. Know that I am sovereign over history. I am the God who wants to be with my people. I am the God who has plans for good for my people. I am the God who breathes life into what is completely dead. I am the God who mends what is irreconcilably broken. This is God's message in these prophecies. Don't, don't give up hope. Don't, uh, don't despair. God is still at work. God is still moving. God is still able. God is still breathing life. His spirit is still alive and well. It's, I think our response, the only response that really makes sense here is this, to live like there is hope. If we have a God like that, then we can have a hope that goes beyond uh, imagination, you know, beyond uh, statistics, beyond uh, a track record that seems bleak. We can have hope because our God is just really, really amazing. Yeah, let me pray for us as the team comes back up. God, when we stop and, and consider all that you've done and all that you've promised to still do, uh, we're overwhelmed. It is hard to believe, and yet we know you are big enough to accomplish these things. Whether it's in your big plan of history or whether it's in um, our own souls and in our own homes and in our, our marriages and our, our families and our towns, Lord, we, uh, we invite you to restore our hope in your greatness. Uh, in your sovereignty, in your power, in your your love, and uh, teach us to trust that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.